Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB, asking the important questions about the call to love. In our previous episode, we covered when Harry met Sally and did not finish talking about it. We pick our conversation back up in part two. Staying over? Yes. Would you like to have dinner? Just friends. I thought you didn't believe men and women could be friends. When did I say that? On the ride to New York. No, 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 no. I never said this. Yes, that's right. They can't be friends. Okay. And putting aside Sally's relationship with the son of President Gerald Ford. Oh, seriously? Yeah, Stephen Ford. I had no idea. Amazing. Stephen Ford is the actor who plays Joe, who we see like twice. (laughs) But pivoting to Harry, his relationships are more numerous and more dysfunctional than Sally's are, which is borne out like pretty much right away. The first words out of Harry's mouth in the entire movie in 1977 are, I love you, (laughs) which... Uh, He doesn't say ever again until that great speech at the end. Mm. But he says, I love you to a woman he never even thinks about. Like, he doesn't remember her name five years later. Because he he lives kind of a stereotypically promiscuous, womanizing lifestyle. Where he has this kind of nihilistic view of the world. Which, when we meet up with him again five years later in the uh, airport scene, when he's getting married, surprisingly enough, it's because he got tired of, quote, the whole thing. Uh, Meaning the life of a single guy, which he equates with sleeping around. (laughs) Go figure. That didn't have a long shelf life. Huh. Yeah. Which is one reason why I want to contest his, his big thesis of how men and women can't be friends, because... He believes that strongly at the beginning when he is such a bad boyfriend. Um, So, you know, like Sally, I just kind of want to reflexively disagree with whatever he says. Well, I will say, how would he know? He's clearly never been friends with a woman, even the women (laughs) he dates. Yeah. Like, he's not exactly a shining example of somebody to be taking advice from. In my experience, as a recent college graduate, (laughs) I have never encountered an adult male and adult female being friends. But yeah, no, I think this movie kind of deconstructs the womanizing guy in a way that was also done pretty well in uh, How I Met Your Mother, the sitcom a few decades later, with the uh, Barney Stinson character played by Neil Neil Patrick Harris. Now that show sort of plays jump rope with the line between endorsing his lifestyle and playing it for laughs and actually articulating a criticism of that way of life. But it does a lot of the same things, like showing that it's totally unfulfilling, it's rooted in personal privation. And this is something Harry very slowly comes to realize, and not really even in so many words specifically you know his his friendship with sally does help him with that because she's like the one person in his life who can challenge him that he'll actually listen to but she also calls him out on it when yeah you know they have their kind of blow up after when they're over at marie and and jess's place the wagon wheel coffee table scene the wagon wheel coffee table who knew who knew you'd give such great decor advice by uh (laughs) having a meltdown about his divorce but i do think that he says to her at that point that you're not how can you be over the guy you're not even like out there sleeping with anybody and she's like you're the one who's sleeping with everybody and you're having a meltdown about your divorce. So like how much good is this really doing for you? How is that your standard of emotional health? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I think it's interesting that like she is calling out the fact that you being able to be emotionally unavailable is not actually a good thing. Yeah, right. Like you're deluding yourself. I think an example that is not romantically related, but is also 
reflects something of the same tendency in Harry's thinking is his death-obsessed habit of reading the last page of a book. He says, you know, whenever he starts a book, he's, he also skips to the last page in case he dies before actually finishing it from beginning to end. So, he, you know, he'll at least, like, have seen the last page. Like, he's unwilling to invest in the suspense of reading a 500-page book and not knowing how it ends because he's afraid that he's not going to get to the end of it. I think that might have something to do with how he approaches women as well. Like, he's afraid to get to know a woman and not just use her because he's afraid that it's not going to work out for him. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly... I mean, it's clear throughout this movie that he is sort of inaccessible even to himself in his emotional life. And I feel like the Sally character is kind of the only one who confronts that with him. Even in in the end when he, you know, they do sleep together and then he's, oh, he kind of freaks out about it. And she's real with him. They're like, I can't pretend this is nothing and I don't want your apology because... I wanted it to be something real and you freaked out on me. I feel like she's the only person who makes him confront the reality of his like lack of emotional access. It was a little difficult for me to figure out what they were trying to say towards the end of the movie. But I think so in the scene where they well, she finds out that her ex-boyfriend is getting married when she thought he never wanted to get married. And she finally lets out all her sadness about being rejected. And Harry goes over to console her. They have sex at the end of that. There are problems on both sides here because for both of them, having sex is trying to elicit elicit some kind of emotional response from the other to benefit themselves. I think this is like kind of the self-oriented sensuality that gets discussed in Love and Responsibility. Mm -hmm. For Sally, I think she wanted to... Well, I don't know. What, What do you think Sally wanted to get out of this? That conversation between her and Harry outside of Jess and Marie's is interesting on both sides and on Sally's side he's basically calling her out for being very emotionally closed off Miss Hospital Corners yeah Miss Hospital Corners which I think is true she kind of compartmentalizes and sort of refuses to deal with the reality of of her own pain right Mm. like it's unclear to me how much time has passed maybe it's been a year since her and Joe have broken up but You know, the fact that she never really acknowledges that, like, I was in this relationship for a long time and it really kind of kills me that we didn't work out. She's always insisting that it's not a big deal. Um, Like, she's in, she's clearly in denial and Harry is calling her out for that. And I, I think her calling him and him coming over, I think it's more part of her inability to be like emotionally honest. Like it's easier to make a move than it is to say, I have feelings for you. Because to say I have feelings for you requires vulnerability. And I mean, it also requires a certain level of trust Yeah, that, you know, I think, you know, we also, it's also brought up in Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love about like these things are developed over time. And, like, the two of them should have that trust because they obviously are very good friends and are interested in each other. But to let somebody know who hasn't said that they're interested in you yet requires vulnerability. But neither of them is willing to be vulnerable, which is part of their problems in the first place. Like, I think even part of her problem with Joe, right, is, like, she's unwilling to admit to herself, oh, maybe I don't want a life that's just jetting off to, to Venice or wherever she said, to Rome. We, ne- we never go to Rome at a moment's notice, right? 
in general, she kind of isn't honest with herself. And I think that like both of them suffer from a lack of an ability to be emotionally vulnerable with themselves and with others. And then on Harry's side, his whole life, having sex with women has been this sort of emotionally trivial activity that is very disposable. You know, he just has always gotten up and left shortly after it ended and forgotten about the person. And then finally there is a woman who really means something to him and he has sex with her. And I think the reason he's so uncomfortable after that is he has put her in that same box that he's put so many other women. You mean like because they had sex, he like automatically puts her there? Yeah, right. Okay. Because that's the habit he's developed. That's what sex means to him. So he experiences this extreme tension where this woman means a lot to me as a friend and probably somebody that I'm actually attracted to for the first time in my life versus somebody that I just had sex with. And this is the part of the song where I leave. And I think that's his discomfort that causes him to basically try to put her in the rearview mirror. And I think that, yeah, he's developed a bad habit. He, he is not receive good remote preparation for marriage by treating sex and by treating other women in this way. And it has come home to roost uh, and negatively impacted a woman he actually does care about finally. Yeah. Um, does that seem fair? I think that's fair. I, I I think it, you know, goes back to some of the, some of the things that we talked about in Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love about the physical reality of giving yourself to another person. Yeah. And, you know, he's kind of living that reality of holding back part of yourself from the person that he's with and how you know that is not a recipe for intimacy and obviously jp2 is talking about this in in the context of contraception and marriage but i think is just true as a general posture that yeah. if you're not you know making sex a full gift of yourself to the other, it's going to lead to dysfunction. A lot of people, and this is nothing new, apparently, people still think that they, you know, they can still get married someday, but for right now, you know, I can fool around and it will have no impact on me, you know, down the road. But the moral life doesn't work that way. It doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. You can't perform an act now, sexual or otherwise. You can, you, yeah, you can't perform an immoral act now and assume that it's not going to have any impact on you down the road. It impacts the habits that you form, good or bad. You were just talking about like creating a mindset, right? I mean, mindsets get formed over time and like virtue is formed over time by making choices over and over again that are virtuous. And yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right where there's so many times where people are like, oh, I'm just young and having my fun. But when you've basically been training yourself for a decade or however long, it doesn't just, you can't just flip a switch and like suddenly you're living the virtuous life. Like, oh, yeah, you right. know, I'm like, oh, I'm, now I'm going to be virtuous. Like, it's not, it's not that easy. <laughs> I can tell you it's not that easy. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, like working out for, I mean, the Olympics just ended. And, you know, I think that like, it's the kind of thing where we acknowledge it as a society for something like practicing sports. Mm -hmm. You have to work those muscles. You're training for years to be elite at something. And when it comes to relationships, we act like it's something that you just fall into and like then you're going to be good at it because you love each other. Yeah. It's like, no, it does not work that way. It's, it's like any other muscle that you're working. Wanting to win the gold medal does not automatically make you able to win the gold medal. <laughs> just because you want to fall in love with this person doesn't mean you're capable of loving this person. <laughs>
Speaking of which, Kara, at the end of this movie, do they actually love each other? I don't think either of them is well-formed enough to truly offer themselves as a gift, a like free and open yeah. gift to the other. But that being said, I think his his speech at the end talking about all the little things he knows about her and that he quote unquote loves about her are actually like pointing in the right direction of genuine love. Cause it's, it's all sort of underscoring the idea of like, I actually know who you are and I am choosing that. Not an idealized version of you, but you with all your faults. Right. Like, and I am articulating that I actually know who you are and that I want to be with you. And that's the free choice I'm making, which I think is a, a step in the right direction, whether or not they are truly in a place to make each of themselves like a free and open gift to the other. It was probably like a work in progress. But I certainly think that, you know, when JP2 talks about mature love and like love of choice, that's not just sentimentality. I do think that they are beyond the sentimentality in some ways, like their sentimentality is coming later because they didn't have any of that at the beginning. And they sort of like became friends despite in some ways, like kind of <laughs> driving each other crazy. Yeah. And so they, the fact that they're like, we see each other clearly and we're choosing to be together is at least a form of that kind of mature love that I think JP2 talks about, even if it's not rooted in virtue and sort of like the ideal that we would as aspire to as Catholics. Okay. I, yeah, I think withdrawn. I saw a YouTube video that tried to make the case that they weren't in love even at the very end when they're given the old couple interview about their wedding cake. The argument the YouTuber was making was like, they talk about this dumb trivial stuff and his speech is about like trivial stuff. I, I think the YouTuber might have been unwilling to see how the trivial stuff was containing deeper meaning. Yeah. I mean, certainly for, I think, people like you and me, good Brad, I would like not find those things satisfying. Right. I would I would find that very sweet, but also I would not get married to somebody who I haven't had some like deep theological conversation about and like, do I know their worldview? And like, what do they, how do they feel about <laughs> Jesus? You know? Right. Uh, <laughs> but these are clearly not things that are on their radar. So. Right. Let, let's assume they are totally pagan and have never heard of Jesus and the, the sort of marriage they enter into is a purely natural covenant and not a sacrament in any way. Yeah. Which would still be like, like a valid marriage. Clearly neither of them have entered the church at any point in time. Although it probably wouldn't be valid because he's been married before, but we don't even know. Uh... I was going to, this is going to be a new segment. Is the marriage valid? Because in theory, no, because he's already been married. However, there might be grounds to get an annulment with that first one because there's reason to believe that he didn't believe marriage was a lifelong covenant. In which case, if you get on your wedding day and you don't believe marriage is a lifelong covenant, then that's grounds to, you know, show that you didn't have full consent or you didn't know it. You didn't believe about marriage. You didn't understand marriage to be the thing you outwardly appear to be entering into. Mm. But we presume it's valid until they actually apply for the annulment, so we don't know. <laughs> I don't have any canon law training either, so it's probably dangerous for me to speculate. Much simpler for me. I was like, I'm in the clear, he's in the clear, we're good. Or yeah. <laughs> no prior marriages that either of us are aware of in our own lives. <laughs> what do we make of the hairstyles across the decades? Oh, amazing. I just... I. <laughs> great i love the shout outs to just like i mean in the time it's obviously not a shout out but like yeah i just loved the like everything was just so 
insert year it's supposed to be. The yeah. wife, the wife showing up in her lawyer outfit at the sharper image was just chef's kiss. <laughs> Amazing. Was she have like long flowy pants? I think maybe it was just like a super box. I don't remember the pants. I just remember the oh, jacket yeah. was like this huge the shoulder boxy, pads. Yeah, huge shoulder pads. Her hair was huge. Meg Ryan's hair was huge. She had like good Farrah Fawcett hair in the '77 uh, clip. That was that was pretty nice. <laughs> um, I, so I originally the first I saw this movie a while ago, and my takeaway was that his younger Harry's younger appearance was fairly convincing, even though he's like older than a college kid. Obviously, going back though, I definitely noticed that there was a an elevation gap between his hair and his scalp. <laughs> There's only so much that the magic of movies can do for you. Yeah, so that stuck out a lot more this time. While we're uh, getting into random observations about this movie, can I just say that Meg Ryan is a terrible crier? Her (laughs) crying in that scene is so bad. She's pretty good in Top Gun, which is why I feel like this is even worse. So I, I think you're not supposed to be crying with her, right? Like this is supposed to be funny crying. I think. I, I mean, it is funny. It's all, It's just, it's bad. It was really bad. You're talking about the Joe dumped me scene, or Joe's getting married scene, right? Yes. Where she's in the bathroom and she's like throwing tissues everywhere. And... Well, the throwing the tissues is funny. It's like her face. I don't know what is happening. I'm like, Meg Ryan, you're better than this. I think she's like jutting her chin out or something. And there's also a lot, a lot of elbow action too. <laughs> it was it was a real choice. I'll give her that. Yeah. <laughs> It felt kind of like vaudevillian almost. Definitely the tossing the tissues everywhere. That was pretty, that was, that had a good comedic effect. My other nitpick is that would Joe really call Sally to tell her that he's getting married? Why would you do that? Oh, I don't know. I, I, that's got to be some kind of phone etiquette that we don't remember back in the 80s when the phone was, was the primary mode of communication or something. But that would be like texting um, your ex you haven't talked to in a year to be like, BT dubs, I'm getting married. <laughs> like, I didn't need to know. You've moved on, I've moved on. I'd rather run into you and just find out. She made it sound like when that phone conversation started, that it wasn't out of the blue, not so much she expected to hear the news that he broke to her, but that they had talked on the phone at some point after they broke up and that it wasn't, totally unexpected for one of them to call the other one just on kind of a semi-regular basis oh well i have also issues with that then that is big (laughs) no-no in my book but (laughs) no wonder she can't let it go they're still talking to each other (laughs) ridiculous (laughs) oh i guess we gotta talk about the deli scene too because it's like the most famous thing in the movies i will just say nobody would ever believe that it's because of what she's having cats is good it's not that good I feel like it's been done to death. Like it shows up on every like Oscars montage. It's the first thing everybody thinks about when this, you know, when this movie comes up. It's true. I found the whole scene. I was just sort of like, "Eh, okay, whatever. Here we go. Although I did think it was (laughs) nice to sort of like undermine like he really thinks he knows so much about women. Yes. Which again, he's apparently never been friends with a woman ever because he only ever sleeps with them. His entire, like, scope about his understanding of women is, like, clearly suspect from start to finish. That's the, like, role it plays is, like, demonstrating to him that he does not know nearly as much as he thinks he does in general and also about women. (laughs) Which, yeah, in that sense, it's beneficial. But, yeah, when I first moved to New York City, my parents, my parents love pastrami sandwiches. And so I moved, when I moved to New York, I lived only like 15 blocks away from Katz's Deli. No, I guess technically I lived on 20th Street, so I lived 20 blocks away. 
So my parents like insisted we go to Katz's and they were very disappointed. Granted, pastrami is not their thing, but you know, sort of like this scene in the movie. It's it's a little disappointing. Go across the street to uh, the gelato place though. Highly recommend. You heard it here first, folks. That's probably, <laughs> if you're a real New Yorker, that's probably common knowledge. But... That's true. Laboratorio de Gelato is well known and delicious. <laughs> Do real New Yorkers like going to Katz's or is it too touristy? I don't think I've ever had somebody suggest we go to Katz's. I've okay. only been twice. Both times was with other people who are not from, from New York who wanted to go there. Yeah. So I feel like there are more authentic places to go. Uh, also of note, Zabar's, which makes some <laughs> appearance in the coffee scene when uh, – Marie is pouring out some coffee. Zabar's is like a very legit Jewish grocery slash deli on the Upper West Side. Barney Greengrass also on the Upper West Side. All good places to go. Those are kind of like smoked fish places. There are other like, you know, regular Jewish delis that are better, I think. Katz's, is, I'll give them credit. They've clearly capitalized on their moment of fame. Not everybody can say that they have been able to survive just because they got a, a cameo in a movie. But. Yeah, they, they have a sign up in the restaurant saying, this is where Harry met Sally. Hope you have what she's having. Um, <laughs> Gotta love the uh, New Yorker marketing ingenuity. I'll give, I'll give them credit for that. Yeah. Okay, do you have a favorite of the old couples that get periodically interviewed in this movie about their meeting story? Do you have a favorite old couple? Mm. If it hasn't become clear yet, I, I have a very soft spot for New York. So I loved the old couple who they were sort of having like parallel conversations talking about how like they were born in the same hospital and like grew up in the tenements and like they would the other one would start halfway through what the first one was saying with like a related but separate thing. And <laughs> they were they were the most adorably New York to me. Yeah, they're they're the cute couple. They they like Grew up in the same neighborhood and never met. We never met. And <laughs> they meet in like an elevator. And he, in and Chicago, I wrote, of all places. I wrote, up, I wrote up nine extra floors to keep talking to her. Nine extra floors. <laughs> I got the accents and all of them are great. Just mm -hmm. very, very genuine. I can't remember. Uh, I know I've looked this up before, but I think they're real couples. I didn't think that they were actors. I think they are real stories that they had actors mm. read. They're sense. very convincing, though. Yeah, they're all excellent. What, how about you? What was your favorite? Uh, I, it's the cute couple that met in the elevator that the grew up you know, on the same block as each other. I think, I think that's the most endearing one of all of them. Because there's, like the there's the one that's not at all endearing, where the guy was married to her, and then they divorced, and then he was in like three other relationships, and he didn't remember the names of the women, but she did, and then... He met her again later at a funeral and they got married again. That was so, it's meant to be off-putting. I feel like the part that was most jarring about it was like, we got married again 35 years after our first wedding date. I was kind of like, it's not, you're not expecting them to say 35 years since our first wedding. It's like 30, and, and now we've been together 35 years. Instead, it's, <laughs> we got back together 35 years later. I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> That's one thing this movie does well is it it, it avoids being saccharine. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of unpleasant details that usually get played for laughs, um, but that bring it bring it down to earth. 
um, mm-hmm. so that it's not, you know, it's not a fairy tale or anything like that. I mean, it's the the beauty of Nora Ephron. I mean, yeah, the, it's the kind of topics where in a lesser writer's hands, they become sort of formulaic or or too saccharine. But she has the ability to thread that needle. Yeah, because in that in that last scene, which is New Year's Day, nineteen eighty nine, just happens to take place on my literal birthday. Oh, really? Yeah. So in the, in the last scene, he makes a speech, and she is won over by it. But in in communicating that she's won over by it, she ends by saying, "I hate you." Like you you say these things, and it makes me impossible for me to hate you, and I really hate you. And that's a very poetic way of saying the exact opposite in like an atypical way you know like you're saying in a lesser writer's hands they wouldn't they would never have them finally get together at the end of the movie by her saying i hate you but Nora Ephron finds a way to do it so that was really cool one final question for you good brad is this movie a chick flick Oh, that's a great question. I'm probably the wrong person to ask, but I don't think of it as a chick flick. I think as a guy, when I hear chick flick, I think of a movie that is pandering to women who want to be pandered to. Mm. And That's a good distinction. This movie, to me, seems to have broad appeal. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, probably no. If mm, I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's it's interesting you talking about like pandering to women who want to be pandered to. I think part of that is sort of presenting men unrealistically. And I think the fact that I find Harry so repulsive throughout this movie is a testament to the fact that like Nora Ephron is not trying to make him into the knight in shining armor. Yeah. I think a lot of chick flicks, you know, present guys who are maybe flawed but lovable. And I think Harry is in many ways flawed and sort of unlovable. Like you yeah. kind of like him despite how gross he is. And I think that makes it less chick flicky. I guess that's what makes it avail- mm. like more accessible for men. Where I think men yeah. don't feel like they're being put in some stupid box. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm projecting onto men. But I would think that like for most guys, they would not enjoy watching a chick flick where the guys are unrealistic in a emotional way where they're like, I just get women and I'm super romantic and I genuinely enjoy walks on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this movie and many Nora Ephron movies, the guys are, are far more accessible to real men. Now, I don't know what proportion of men who see this movie actually like it. So I can't say that. Fair. And I don't know if that should be a barometer to what's a chick flick and what's not. Do you think that the term chick flick is inherently derogatory or are we culturally unfair to chick flicks and some of them are good? I think we're unfair to chick flicks. Case in point would be, I know lots of guys who sort of sheepishly tell me how much they love Mean Girls because they're like, well, I know it's a girl movie, but Mean mm. Girls is great. It's interesting. It's a girl movie because it's so centered on the female experience in a way yeah. that I think is like slightly inaccessible to guys. But it's so funny that everybody loves it. And I mean, obviously, Tina Fey right. is a brilliant writer. Yeah. They do lots of other things in it that are fully accessible. Topics that are primarily aimed at women, there is a stigma. True. Like a lot of guys are very uncomfortable yeah. admitting that they're into a movie that is primarily about topics women like. Yeah. But ultimately, like Mean Girls isn't really like about being a girl. It's about like social dynamics. And I mean, it's just hilarious. They do so many funny things in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know if the solution is people should be okay to like chick flicks or they should they should draw a distinction between chick flicks and movies that they like that are geared towards women that are not chick flicks. I don't know which way is the right way to go. 
Fair. I don't have an answer to this either. It was something I was mulling over myself. You know, I guess I, I do tend to put a lot of rom-coms in the chick flick category, but right. that's also be, maybe being pejorative where it's like, oh, well, as if guys don't enjoy a romantic comedy. Guys also want to fall in love, I presume, and enjoy something funny. I mean, I'm trying to find examples of a rom-com that's more geared towards guys. Oh, I'm not sure that that really exists. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it does exist. I can think of chick flicks that are not rom-coms, like The Notebook. Yeah, there's no comedy. Is it fair to say that that is a chick flick? I think so, yeah. That's like all sappy. I mean, there might be guys who are into it. I mean, it was written by a guy, but it feels like a guy pandering to women. Is that Nicholas Sparks? Oh, yeah. Okay. Of course. That is his magnum opus, right? <laughs> Despite the shade I'm throwing, I cry every time I watch it, so I'm not above... <laughs> I still haven't seen The Notebook, so I, I can't say. But I, yeah, I struggle with the with, with where we should situate the label chick flick. And I think part of the difficulty there is because there's no flip side. There's no shoes on the other foot version of a chick flick because women generally have been more willing to see movies geared at guys. I do think there's some bro movies, almost all the Judd Apatow, you know, super bad and... Old school and those... But I think you're right. I think women are more willing to go see that. But I still think of those as dude movies. And I think if women have the same unwillingness to see guys' movies that men have had to see quote-unquote chick flicks, I think that would be fair. Like, I don't think it would be fair to guys to expect women to see quote-unquote their movies and not want to see chick flicks. Gosh, there's so many scare quotes in this conversation. I don't know if we're going <laughs> to find a way out of this one. I think that, that's right. probably this another is... podcast where we can solve the movie industry's target audience woes. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to estimate this movie when Harry Met Sally's like, significance in the broader canon. Yeah, I do think that this movie crosses boundaries however you want to classify it even if you've never seen it at least the question like can men and women be friends obviously the cat's sandwiches scene there's like a lot of things that are really iconic about this movie whether or not you've seen it before that i think has crossed into the cultural conscience yeah i, I agree and i think it shows that the way people talk about relationships now are not as new as we think they are because they were still having these conversations in the 70s and 80s. And, th and this movie, you know, did some good work in reflecting on those conversations publicly, which that mm. might have been new at the time. But people now who maybe haven't seen this movie, like younger people, maybe don't understand that they're reinventing the wheel a little bit. I, I will say I was I when I watched it the first time, I was like, oh, these are all the same conversations my <laughs> friends and I have. Which I find comforting, you know, nobody has it all figured out. Or at least once you figured it out, you go and get married and then you leave the questions to the single people to keep figuring out. <laughs> the writing is so good. Like the, uh, the scene where Sally tells her friends that she and Joe split up <laughs> and the one friend is like, oh, that's horrible. And Carrie Fisher, like, without even her finishing the sentence. Joe and I broke up. What? When? Monday. You waited three days to you tell Joe's us? Joe's available? Oh, for God's sakes, Marie. The, the pattern oh in that scene is so good. Carrie Fisher's character in general, just the entire trope of hers, like with this married guy and they're like, he's not leaving his wife. It's just like, it's so painful. You're right. And then she goes back to him and they repeat this in the next scene. Uh, yeah. He's never going to leave her. You're right. I will say it was, I remember the first time I saw this, it was very jarring to see Carrie Fisher not being Princess Leia, but she's good in it. She's great in this, yeah. 
Um, and I, as a lifelong Star Wars fan, similarly like see her as Princess Leia. I, I have difficulty believing she's going to go for Bruno Kirby, mustache friend. Does that seem weird. implausible to you? It's a weird choice. Not going to lie. Okay. Yeah. Carrie Fisher is kind of like too good for him. For sure. But yeah. granted, her character is clearly not too good for him. What a hot mess. <laughs> yeah, not not so much ethically. And I guess their bond is chiefly intellectual at the beginning. Like they they have the same ideas about writing and also as another New York aside, I think he is very right. Restaurants are to New Yorkers in like the eighties, nineties, two thousands, and probably into the twenty twenties now. Uh definitely <laughs> like the cultural cachet. I remember learning when I went there was like, oh, being a foodie and like knowing the restaurant openings is a thing. I mean, every time I go to New York, all I do is set up an itinerary of where we're going. So. <laughs> Including dollar pizza. Things are very important to get into your cultural list. <laughs> so maybe the issue is the theater being this to the people in the 60s. Maybe that's the problem. They're, they're thinking too highbrow. I mean, I think now in 20, the 2020s, it's more like, do you know the high and lowbrow places? Do you know right. the, the like place for the best cheap dim sum and dollar pizza and the trendy tasting menu only place? Yeah, it's sort of you. You have to you have to be acquainted with the extremes as long as you are making fun of Guy Fieri. Yeah, definitely. Hondo P. No, <laughs> no Olive Garden. <laughs> did you just say Hondo P? I did. As in 100%? I've never heard that before. What is that? Uh, I was told by my – so my husband works with uh, the youth, if you will. Oh, gosh. Okay. Comes comes home with lots of isms that like we sort of jokingly start to say to each other and then actually becomes part of our vocabulary. Oh, my goodness. If that's like Zoomer slang, <laughs> hundo P. Honestly, I have literally never heard anybody actually say this other than what my husband told me. So I can't I can't truly vouch for it. <laughs> um, OK, we have been recording for a long time about this movie, um, but I think we covered it. Kara, any parting thoughts to keep us talking about when Harry met Sally? I mean, men, women and the mystery of love coming through for us yet again. That's going to have some mileage. It's a good thing we covered it so much because, yeah, it, that, that'll be a reference text for us going forward. Yeah, I feel like maybe this will encourage people to go listen to the old apps. Yeah, go listen to our even-numbered episodes from 60 to 70. That's where we talk about men, women, and the mystery of love. This has been our practicum of When Harry Met Sally. This is the lab experience for that book. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. What does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. I mean, should old acquaintance be forgotten? Does that mean that we should forget old acquaintances? It doesn't mean that if we happen to forget them, we should remember them, which is not possible because we already forgot them. Well, maybe it just means that we should remember that we forgot them or something. <laughs> anyway, it's about old friends. Please share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.